Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Big Trouble in Little China, the 1986 film directed by John Carpenter and starring Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell plays Jack Burton, a swaggering truck driver who, while helping to rescue his best friend's fiance, becomes embroiled in a mystical battle beneath the streets of San Francisco's Chinatown. If the film is new to you, that might seem like a lot to unpack. But when you're trying to describe a fantasy martial arts action comedy mashup, that's what you get. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter scores 78%, and the critics' consensus reads, brimming with energy and packed with humor, Big Trouble in Little China distills kung fu B-movies as affectionately as it subverts them. The film did not perform well commercially when initially released, but it's since become a cult classic. It's a favorite of mine, and if you haven't seen it, not only should you rectify that oversight immediately, but consider this a spoiler warning. My guest today is the film's director of photography, Dean Cundy. Dean, your cinematography resume includes Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Most important to our purposes, you shot five of John Carpenter's films. Welcome back to Below the Line. Well, thanks, Skid. It's great to be here and um, share some of my um, memories, I guess you're going to call them. Well, Dean, when you visited with us last year, and what a long, strange trip it's been, <laughs> it was for two episodes about John Carpenter's The Thing. And we teased that this was an episode I wanted to do, and I really appreciate you coming back. For listeners, it's not necessary to have heard those episodes for today's discussion, but there are some through threads we're going to revisit. Dean, let's start with your collaboration with John Carpenter. Last time you mentioned that producer Deborah Hill had introduced you for the film Halloween in 1978. That's correct. You did five films together, The Fog and Escape from New York before The Thing in 1982, and then came back for Big Trouble, which is your last film with John in 1986. Tell us a little about what you're up to between The Thing and Big Trouble and how you picked up with John Carpenter again. I sometimes have trouble remembering what I did um, next to what movie and so forth. I would have to almost go to my uh, IMDb to to see, unless you have some hints. You know, Dean, it's funny. I, I, I did you the courtesy of that. Now, from release date, you can't always know when the film was done, obviously. But it looks like in that period, you started with um, Romancing the Stone and your Zemeckis relationship was underway. I think you did both that and Back to the Future in that window. Yeah, if I, um, if I remember correctly, yes, those were the next series of films that I did with somebody. And then you weren't done with Zemeckis, but it looks like he took some time off. And it looks like that's when you probably filmed Big Trouble in Little China. That sounds about right. It was a pretty active uh, period for me. And fortunately, I, I connected with some good directors and uh, interesting movies. So coming back in with uh, Big Trouble in Little China, what was the pitch from John to you about joining him on this one? According to my recollection and understanding, Big Trouble was John's first big studio movie. Escape from New York was um, Avco Embassy. Uh, the thing, thing, I guess, would be considered a big studio movie because it was universal. But there was a great deal of sort of independence. Uh, there was a difference between, I think, Universal's approach to it and Fox, 20th Century Fox's uh, approach to, to Big Trouble. You know, so we, we really with the thing enjoyed um, a lot of our own sort of independence. And it was my first major studio film also, each one before being an escalated independent film. But the thing 
I think was a transitional period between all of the uh, indie films and then Big Trouble. We, we really enjoyed uh, the ability to, to, to just be creative on our own terms, you might say. And it was, it was fun for me because it was the first time I worked at a, on a big studio lot, sound stages and set construction and all of that stuff. So Big Trouble was a return to that, but bigger and better. The set construction, the, um, the studio you know, facilities, all of that were, were definitely a major studio. And while I was not directly involved with the studio's um, you know, involvement, I sensed that John was, um, was being worked, uh, watched and given um, a lot of suggestions, um, if you can see my air quotes, <laughs> Uh, about how to um, make the movie and uh, what they were expecting and what they wanted out of it and so forth. So I think it, it became one of those things that was the antithesis of what we had done. You know, I mean, you look at Halloween, somebody said, Here, here's 250000 just make a good movie and went away. And uh, so we we got spoiled with the ability to to do our own movie. Uh, Big Trouble, I think, was was different for John because there was an awful lot more watching and involvement by the studio and the executives and watching dailies and making suggestions. And, and I know that there was a, a tremendous amount of big studio from the standpoint of production design and sets. It was the most elaborate construction that I had worked on. You know, if you look at it, it's really impressive the amount of stuff that John Lloyd, the production designer, did because there's nothing in the frame ever that wasn't designed and built. A tremendous amount of handwork on tunnels and Chinese rooms and even the, 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 the restaurant and the sequence at the, the market at the beginning at night in the rain and I'm carefully con- constructed and uh, thought out. And it, to, to me, that was very impressive and, and a great delight to be working in, in a mode that hadn't, you know, hadn't really been that done by me, but also by um, films for quite a while. I mean, it, it harkened back to the days of the 30s and 40s where everything that you saw was on a, uh, a studio stage. Everything was built in those days. Well, for Big Trouble in Little China, it was the same thing. Everything you see in the film was designed and built and painted and lit and, and so forth, all for, for mood and you know style. I feel sometimes when I'm watching a film that relies on the back lots, and this may be because I spent quite a bit of my career at Warner Brothers, when I see one of those corners, sometimes I recognize it. This is, I think, the opposite, where so much effort and detail has gone into these scenes that you're never distracted by the sense that it's been placed there, that it feels like it's exterior and on location, even though, as you described, they've built this massive set for you guys at 20th Century Fox. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say John Lloyd was the best production designer I had worked with, certainly up to that point. But 
as I look back, probably one of the best that I've, I've worked with, because not that I haven't worked with creative guys, but so much of what you do now is adapting and shooting in real locations, and you shoot what you're given. And John designed and constructed every single thing you see, and every single thing you see is, is perfect for the story, perfect for the scene, and perfect for the characters. So it was an amazing, um, amazing thing to go on to stages at uh, 20th Century Fox and know that we were shooting absolutely everything. The exteriors, the first trip into Little China by Kurt and his truck, and the big battle, the martial arts scene that takes place in the alleys, rather than being on an exterior set at night and being limited to what there is or a real alley or whatever, an entire stage was filled with kind of twisty, turny alleys and back doors. And, and I remember covering the top of the entire set, which was the entire stage, with a white silk and putting lights above it so that there was a soft, even, mysterious kind of light. And we were able to shoot any direction on this amazing set that um, introduces you to the world of Big Trouble and to Kurt's newfound adventure. Dean, talking about that world, I want to go a little deeper into the work that you brought as the director of photography for the look and theme of what this film was going to be. What I noticed recently in rewatching it was there's a lot of moments where these very complicated action scenes are marked by humor. Well, I love humor. I love comedy. I love doing films that tickle your funny bone. So this was such a great combination. I, I think that um, it was a little surprising that uh, the film was not more successful, although I think it was ahead of its time. Now we look at all of these superhero films and action adventure comedies and say, well, yes, they're successful because the audience has caught up. And Big Trouble was like one of its, the first ones. You know, I've worked on a, a few of those that were first forays into a particular genre. It's always interesting to me to see that the film is not a huge success when it opens, but that when, when there's a little time and, and the audience develops an appreciation for a particular genre or style of storytelling, that, that the films become cult classics and they find a long-term audience compared to a lot of films where they come out and people go to see them or they watch them on TV and then they uh, sort of disappear. This one has its legs because I think it was ahead of its time in martial arts and comedy com combination, also in uh, sort of American martial arts storytelling. So much of what is there, the action, is based on, on Chinese martial arts. As a matter of fact, John was really hoping to explore that even more. He had Chinese fight coordinators and stunt people. You know, he had the intention of staging the action in a way that was really sort of new to American audiences in Chinese martial arts. And um, there were limitations of what, what we could do because there were people said, oh, well, that's crazy. They, it's not as safe as what we do with, um, you know, and, and our concern for safety and so forth um, is certainly understandable, but it, it guides 
so much of the action scenes, um, you know, until recently with visual effects that can enhance, but uh, um, a lot of action scenes were sort of inhibited by concern for safety. Not that I'm saying that that's a bad thing. It's, it's an extremely important thing, but, you know, it's sort of the, the reality of, um, of staging action scenes. So the sequences that uh, we did were very sort of state-of-the-art for uh, action films at the time, martial arts films, but peppered into it was all of the comedy. It was um, Kurt, Kurt's character, Jack, reacting to and being a victim of and he is definitely the fish out of water amongst all of this stuff. You know, you, you see all of the Chinese martial artists just doing amazing things. And, and even the uh, so-called American characters, Dennis Dunn and so forth, doing some amazing moves and stunts and so forth. And Jack Burton is sort of us. He's the observer to this, this world. He's thrown into it by circumstances, but certainly by his bravado. Oh, let me in there. I can take care of this. <laughs> what the heck is happening now? You know, <laughs> that kind of feeling. I, I think it was, it was, for me, it was a great adventure into a new sort of genre or a subgenre. And I, I had a great deal of fun helping with the comedy, intercutting amazing um, martial moves with Jack Burton going, what? You know, and saying, oh, I'll take care of this. And then he fails, um, you know. So I think it was a, a great deal of fun for all of us to do that. I read a quote, and I'm not sure if it's from John himself, or was a description that the idea of the movie is that Jack Burton is a sidekick who thinks he's the action hero. Um, and that sort of plays well in his action. But even knowing that up front, as you described, it's a really tough balance to pull off. And I think this movie does extremely well with, as you said, cutting between the scenes and grabbing certain bits. When we talked about the thing, and I know I'm referring back again, a lot of that was storyboarded out. And you talked about how closely you followed it. At a movie like this or comedy in general, is it possible to plan things out that explicitly up front? Or do you capture some of that in the course of it actually being filmed? Well, I think uh, in the, the case of the uh, the martial arts sequences. Uh, so much of it was what was created by the the stunt guys, the the martial artists, and they had particular moves and particular ideas and action moments that they knew or they were developing or they had an idea about. So um, a lot of the action wasn't storyboarded. We said, well, okay, so now this guy comes in here and something exciting happens. What is it? And the guy will say, ah, wait, let me show you. And um, he would call a couple of his buddies over and they'd say, well, how about we do this and this, and then I'll do this. And then, you know, and they would work out a sequence. It was, you know, it was fascinating to see the, the creativity that goes into action. You know, I mean, you sort of say, well, now there's a bunch of guys and they fight each other. No, it, it has to be very carefully choreographed and choreographed for uh, the camera so that the action looks credible, but you're not really hurting anybody. It's a very, very uh, skilled kind of thing. And, and so I don't remember much in the way of storyboarding at all. And John, John is very good at knowing what he, he wants to shoot and communicating that. 
And um, one of my great pleasures is working with him and directors like him who who then say, how about this? And I'll, I would say, well, and then can we embellish it by this? And you develop a, a, a sequence uh, or a scene um, out of that, thinking that it's really about the camera and the audience seeing something, whether it's action or whether it's comedy or whether it's drama or mystery or whatever, and experiencing that in such a way that uh, they are completely involved and they, they believe um, if, if that's what you want them to do. Dean, I want to go a little deeper into one of the sequences you alluded to earlier, and that's early in the movie, Jack Burton's truck is pulling into Chinatown. There's a fight between these two gangs that is then interrupted by these Chinese elemental gods or spirits. And the entire thing is complete chaos. And yet it never feels like chaos going through. That must have taken the entire shoot just to finish that. Like I can't imagine how much time you guys spent just working through everything that was going on there. I'm wondering what specific recollections you might have. That the big opening martial arts sequence, which really introduces the genre to the audience. It sets up the, uh, the lore, the um, dramatic confrontation between various tongs and sides, but, and then also brings in the, the mystical, the, the three elements, um, thunder, uh, rain, and, and whatever he was. Thunder, rain, and lightning. Thunder, rain, and lightning. Yes, of course. I don't know. I just went along with it and believed it. <laughs> and and it was very smart of John Lloyd and the studio and, and John and everybody to stage that on a set. We were not limited by sunlight or changing things or traffic or anything at all. We had complete control of the environment because... Um, was built on the stage and we owned it and the time of day that it represented and all of that. So we were free to just create the action and photograph the action. And I think that was a big help in being able to do the scene exactly as we, we wanted. Another major fight scene is the underground wedding where our heroes arrive and it's the climax of the film, arguably, just as large a fight as the earlier scene. But by now we know our characters a lot better and there are a lot more specific actions that have to be integrated into this larger tapestry of the fight. That was an interesting moment. Another interesting set, very large. And the fact that it was designed with a lot of open space. There were walls that surrounded the central area where the, all the action took place. Um, it allowed us a lot of freedom to create um, the fact that it was uh, on a stage with permanent uh, beams and ceiling meant that um, they could fly guys on wires. You know, we had trampolines. We had all kinds of, you know, help in creating uh, this fantastical sequence. And um, I think it was great because it was not just uh, some guys trying to hit each other and kick each other. But it was flying through the air and magical uh, rays and, and all kinds of other action aspects and elements that kept you involved and in, in guessing what was going to happen next. And I, I think that um, 
the opening sequence sequence in the alleys in Chinatown were, were based on reality, you might say. And you, you, you open it up and you lead the audience into this world of very skilled martial artists who are fighting against each other for we don't care what, you know, control of the alley, um, you know, the control of business, whatever it is, that's immaterial. It's just these two gangs who are so skilled that they amaze us. Then you go to the final action sequence, the, uh, the wedding, and it now has stepped up. We, we understand that these guys are great at kicking and punching, but what else? And now we bring the element of, of magic and mysticism to it. And uh, it, it elevates the, um, the action just another step. Dean, you've talked as well about your appreciation for creature effects and, and working from the camera perspective to make them as real as possible. This movie has a lot of creature effects. It also has a lot of visual effects. Tell me, I think this is a time earlier than now on a Marvel movie where the visual effects people are there full time and you know they're going to recreate it in post. Here, it feels like it's a, a newer relationship. And, and even the visual effects here seem like another level up than what we were seeing just years before. I think the visual effects in Big Trouble are an enhancement to the action and to the uh, martial arts and to the mysticism of this world that we've, uh, we've entered. You know, the, the effects at the time were cruder than what we can do now. Computers have made it almost limitless as far as what you can imagine and execute in a way that is um, either believable or fantastic or whatever you're trying for. In those days, the visual effects were, you know, I hate to say cruder, but they're more intricate and harder to pull off realistically. As I watched the film, The, the Creatures, for instance, now would probably be uh, computer-generated um, creatures uh, with completely different sort of characteristics and, and a different look. The ones that were, were done for Big Trouble were sort of, you might say, conventional but really good creatures of the time. Rubber with um, articulated uh, parts and puppeteering by people. And, and I think that the, um, as I watched it, I, I was appreciative of the fact that they were inhibited by the technology and, the, and so forth at the time when they were making them, but did an amazing job in creating the, the creatures and taking the, the action a step further than had been previously uh, possible. Dean, while we're talking about the fight scenes, there's another one, not as large, not as many people, but where the women have been chained up, there's this bridge fight as some of our heroes go in to rescue them that itself looked really complicated. It's elevated. There's a lot of jumping around. Um, I'm curious if there were any specific challenges on that scene that you recall. The sequence that you're talking about, which takes place on the bridge in a presumably abandoned factory, that was very challenging, very ingenious, because um, by adding an element of, of restriction to what the characters can do, and, you know, again, what the stunt guys can do, adds a completely interesting twist to the action. And um, the fact that Jack Burton, you know, uses the pipe shoveling himself along added a, a very interesting element to the sequence. 
It was a lot of fun trying to accomplish what we had to do there. Every time you see something impossible as far as an environment, we also had to get a camera somewhere. Sometimes that's more complex than than any of the action. But if if it's been carefully thought out, where the camera goes is is almost self-explanatory for shooting the scene uh, because it's been carefully considered uh, for how, how to capture the action. To me, that was one of the more interesting sequences, especially as I rewatched it and remembered the challenges of trying to shoot everything with that, that old bridge. It also occurs to me that there would be similar challenges with the water work in this film. The underwater work was very interesting to me because um, I had not done a lot of it. I um, was always interested in scuba diving, so I was not intimidated by the fact that, you know, that would be an aspect of it. And the sets were very well designed, once again, by John Lloyd. The sequence where the water is filling up the chamber that they're, they're in. It was actually a chamber that sat over top of a, a big pool of water, a, a tank at Fox, and was being lowered in with the camera attached to it. So it looked like the water was coming up, but in fact, the set was being lowered into a tank of water. Ah, when the two of them are in the elevator and they think they're going down, but then it stops and the water exactly. starts coming in, they're actually being lowered. <laughs> exactly. It was a lot of fun to do that, To How do you light that um, I used a lot of light that came through the floor, through the vents uh, on the floor, things like that that made the water work very intriguing for me. And um, having them swim through the uh, pipe into the, uh, the tunnel, getting a camera in near the water but not wet. It was a lot of shooting and techniques and styles that I had almost forgotten until I rewatched it recently and said, oh, yeah. Boy, we did a lot of stuff, didn't we? It was very fun to rewatch and remember the things we did to make the film special. Yeah, because in 1986, you're not taking a little GoPro and attaching it to the wall. When they're coming up out of the water and then this constant flow of actors, one after the next, is swimming by. Also a very funny scene, mind you, but looks like it's difficult to pull off. Water work in general is complicated because um, you're dealing not only with the actors and action and, and stuff that the audience sees, but you're dealing with the, the mechanics and the technicalities of shooting in water. Is the camera encased in an under, underwater box as it was when you know they were underwater with all the skeletons and everything? Or is it just carefully sort of waterproof, but kept above the surface of the water because that gives you a cleaner, sharper image. And so the tunnel sequence, uh, for instance, was done with a camera that you know was sort of hung over the water. We've been talking about how complicated some of these scenes are. Another scene that impressed me, Dean, I wanted to ask you about is actually the opposite where the scene itself is very simple. And that's towards the end of the movie, after we've had the large fight at the wedding, Thunder, one of our Chinese elementals, is chasing Wang back and forth across this room. And the camera is locked outside the door. And basically, they're moving back and forth. Sometimes things are moving back and forth without them. There's a couple of times where we seem to push in and catch the action. So I'm not saying it's completely static, but it's obviously intentional. And it captures both what's happening and the humor that infuses this entire movie. I was very impressed by that and wondering if there was a conversation about it or again, that's just the general theme of what the film was trying to capture. 
I think that sequence of the um, the guys chasing back and forth and you only see through the door, that was an example of humor that drove the scene rather than the action. You could um, easily see that as a scene where two guys are chasing each other and and they stop and they hit each other and then they pick up an object and throw it and then they run some more, and which would be sort of conventional action. What was smart was John saying, well, let's take a break from conventional action and let's do something just because it's funny and yet it's still action. And I think that worked very well. You know, you, you could look at that sequence as classic comedic action that probably goes back to the silent days um, when um, we, you know, we're looking for ways to intrigue and entertain the audience uh, about something that would otherwise be just sort of straightforward. So it was a lot of fun to, to work out the timing of the guys running back and forth and prop people and, and grips throwing objects across the uh, doorway. And it all worked in one, you know, there are no, no cuts or, or camera angle changes. You realize that you as the audience are just sitting in a chair looking through this doorway and these guys are doing this stuff and you can't see a lot of it, but it's still intriguing, but also very funny. Dean, when you watched the movie again, were there other scenes or sequences or memories that came up uh, that struck you as funny or particularly challenging? The humor was always a major aspect. The humor that, that Jack Burton brought, that Kurt carried off so well, that was always one of the driving forces. It was not a martial arts movie. It was a martial arts movie with this fish out of water who sort of represents us his bravado, his, oh, I can step aside, let me in there. I'll take care of this. And then, of course, he fails. You know, that that was one of the fun aspects of the entire film for, for me, certainly, but for, for all of us, uh, to try to uh, put a spin on what you might expect a, a conventional martial arts drama. We're talking about Kurt on set. Now, at this point, all of you have a relationship over a series of movies, and we're talking about working on some very fun stuff. But as we mentioned earlier, the studio had a lot of suggestions, and I feel like in what I've read about the film and some John Carpenter quotes about the movie, that that pressure was present during filming. We've got two forces here, potentially at loggerheads, and I'm interested in how that played out on set. Well, I have to say I was fortunately kind of insulated from all of the behind the scenes uh, stuff. I would hear a story about the studio wanted this or they didn't understand that, but I was sort of an observer and wasn't thrown right into the middle of it. I uh, had a lot of sympathy for, for John because when you are a skilled filmmaker or a filmmaking team, as we were, you always say, well, wait a second, why is there some executive who uh, was a law student or an accountant? Why is he trying to dictate how to make the movie and how to make it for an audience? And that obviously still continues throughout all of contemporary filmmaking. And I can understand a certain part of it because if you are a tried and true, you know, very good filmmaker, you should trust them to make the film. You must know what kind of film you greenlit, what kind of film you were hoping to make as an executive. Let the filmmaker do it. Um, other times, you know, there are 
or filmmakers who aren't as skilled. And there are executives who do understand filmmaking, you know, so it's a, it's a very interesting aspect of, of what we do. The personalities, the creative sensibilities, the, you know, the storytelling skills of both sides, the creative directors and the executives. So I, um, I think it's very sort of tricky because in the case of uh, Big Trouble, there was an established director who had made a number of well-received films who was now suddenly thrown into the politics of, of a uh, major studio. You know, and, and I think a lot of times the, the politics tries to prove their worth. I should be this executive because uh, I can uh, tell this guy how to make his movie better. Some of them can, a lot can't. I find that to be one of the, um, the interesting aspects of filmmaking compared to, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if it, it, that follows through with other businesses, you know, companies that are designing and building cars and designing food products and things like that, or is it unique to the film industry because there's that unknown aspect, you might say, creativity. You can't really say, well, here, here's a, a book on creativity. Read this and you'll be creative. You know, to me, it's an intriguing aspect of, of the people who make films. How, how do you be creative? Uh, where does it come from? Is it how you grew up and learned uh, about the world around you? Are you encouraged or is there an innate creativity in people? You know, I mean, I don't know, it's certainly beyond me. And I just, I just work here. <laughs> well, Dean, this movie speaks to me as a creative filmmaking process. You can see the effort to bring these elements together. But we're also noting the studio interference. One of the things that I read was that they compressed your schedule because they wanted to release the movie ahead of the Eddie Murphy film, The Golden Child, similar Asian themes that would be coming out at Christmas of that year. And so 15 weeks of shooting, 10 weeks of prep before that, did it feel rushed? Did it feel tight? Did you feel compromised on the creative front with the schedule instructions from the studio? I think that schedules are always something that impose on a film, you know, whether it's a TV series and it has to be out and available for viewing, streaming, whatever. There are, you know, examples of movies that um, something went wrong, but they have a release date by the end of summer. Uh, so they had to recast and, or they had to rewrite or do something and it shortens the schedule. And suddenly the filmmaker is challenged with how to make a good story, a good product within a certain amount of time. And I think that uh, there was a certain amount of that with, with this, although having 10 weeks of prep was, was pretty good because that was you know, more, more than a lot of prep that um, John and I had experienced previously. And the 15 weeks of shooting, uh, because it was so complex, it seemed to work out. I don't remember horrendously long days, but there may have been. You know, it, it was always about accomplishing the work according to the schedule that the AD Larry Franco had, um, had worked out. Larry was very good at 
at finding realistic schedules, I think, because he understood the process so well. I don't remember it being an awful experience. I remember it as being a great deal of fun because we were doing things that hadn't been done before. You know, it's, a lot of my films are about things that haven't been done before, techniques, storytelling things, you know. And I've, I've always really enjoyed and appreciated that aspect of, of the projects I've worked on. And Big Trouble was, you know, you look at one of those films now, like Big Trouble, and say, well, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I see there was like martial arts and there was stuff and things happened. And there was flashes of light and lightning. And uh, we're so used to seeing stuff that's a great deal more than that. Um, now in, I mean, in commercials, let alone um, major feature films, that um, it's always rewarding when a, an audience looks at a film again, like Big Trouble, like uh, Back to the Future and Jurassic Park and all of those films, and appreciates the work that went into it, the creativity. And I think it's also something for the filmmakers to um, be proud of in that the film that they made uh, wasn't out for just the summer and disappeared, but it has a, a continuous interest from the audience, the continuing audience. I don't, I don't know how many times people have come up to me and said, oh, I loved uh, whatever the film was. It was the first time I'd ever seen real good dinosaurs. And so now I'm taking my kid and he loves the movie. And, you know, now films I've worked on that have, are three generations of fans. It's great when that occurs because that means what you did touched not just a particular time and place, but it touched a human interest in a story in some aspects of, you know, human adventure or experience. To have something that's prolonged means that the filmmaker and the writer and everybody involved saw the value beyond just making a, a few bucks that summer, but in telling a story that touched people deeply. And that's one of the, my, my greatest satisfactions, I think, in, in what I've done and the films I've worked on and my career. As I started our discussion, this is one of my favorite movies, but it's pretty clear the studio didn't know what they had in their hands. There's a scene in the beginning that I've read was added to make Jack Burton more of a hero than it sounds like John Carpenter and you and the rest of the creative team intended for the film. When something like that happens, is there any indication that maybe the studio is not going to do right by this? From my standpoint as the cinematographer, as a filmmaker, I tend to look at the film as the product that we're hoping to turn out the story we're hoping to tell, the audience we're hoping to touch. And I very much enjoy reading something, a script that says, well, this could be different. And to be able to take that interesting story, the next step with the storytelling, the cinematography, the visual effects, all of the stuff that goes into telling the story to an audience visually. And I think Big Trouble was an example of of that because as I read it, I said, oh, interesting. And, and if you read the script, it's written in a very interesting way. 
there are side notes from the writer. Jack Burton looks out the window. Holy crap, what's going to happen now? That's not something the audience, you know, sees or, you know, it doesn't read. But it tells the, the filmmaker, informs the character of what the moment is, and also about the style of the script and the style of the movie they hope to make. I remember reading Big Trouble and um, thinking, oh, there's a lot of um, asides for the, the reader, insights into stylistically what, what everybody is hoping to accomplish. And I really enjoyed reading that, but also feeling that we were off on a, on a journey that was going to be uh, new and refreshing for all of us. So the film itself was poorly marketed, again, by a studio that I think didn't understand it. And that looks to have been the final straw for John Carpenter, who left the studio system and went back to independent filmmaking. You, meanwhile, went on to do some of your biggest films, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the Back to the Future sequels, Jurassic Park, and the two of you didn't work together again. When people ask me about some of my favorite directors, typically they are the ones who are very good at visual storytelling, using the camera to not only show the audience something happening, but involve the audience, intrigue them, emotionally touch them. Uh, there are certain directors I've worked with, Spielberg, Bob Zemeckis. And so when people ask me, I automatically include John Carpenter as the third, or maybe that's not even the order of them. But John was certainly somebody who understood the use of the camera right from the very beginning. I was impressed working with him on Halloween. He knew how to use the camera efficiently, effectively, and so each film was right exactly what I wanted to be able to do in film, in cinematography. I think I learned a, a great deal from John and my, you know, relationship, how to, um, you know, use the camera all the way through The Thing and, and Escape from New York was very much a visual experience. So I sympathized with John and his being disgruntled with the studio system. I am um, periodically frustrated myself when they say, oh, no, 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 you can't have those big lights. <laughs> and you know that that's what you need to create the mood for that particular scene or shot, you know. So you kind of learn to work around that. So I, I was saddened to see that uh, John had a, a bad time to the extent that it, it affected him in what he wanted to do. But John's work, John's skills are something that doesn't depend on big budget, giant sets, huge action scenes, um, any of that, you know. He doesn't want to make a giant World War II movie. He likes to tell smaller stories that reach an audience emotionally. And he loves doing it with the camera. That's exactly what I enjoy doing. If I do have a big canvas on which to paint, that's fine. But a lot of times it can be just as effective in a small room that's dark and what lurking in the closet. I think that in John's case, he probably said, well, he wanted to be a visual storyteller and emotional storyteller and didn't want all of this intrusion 
of politics and you know giant sets and second guessing and and you need more close-ups and you know that kind of thing you know i i actually worked on a movie where the producer said you know these shots are really effective and they were they were funny but i come from television and we need close-ups because uh, you know there was this impression that a wide shot on television the audience would get lost or something well i think that john was reacting to the fact that there was that kind of sentiment coming from the studio. Where are your close-ups? Why do you move the camera so much? Things like that. So I think John very wisely said, well, he was going to return to what he wanted to do and what he did well. And that's um, the smaller independent film that was all about the characters and story. Well, Dean, appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us about this one. Uh, Really enjoyed it. Well, it's been my pleasure, uh, as always. Please knock on my uh, computer window again anytime. Thanks, Dean. That's a promise. Thanks. We referenced our earlier conversation about John Carpenter's The Thing quite a bit. For new listeners, that was episode one and two of season six. It's easy to peruse all of our back episodes at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. You can also send email questions or comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline.biz. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Hope you're enjoying the current season. Be safe out there.